On this episode, Salim Firth, a senior research fellow and co-director of the Urbanity Project here at Mercatus, discusses the new White House Housing Supply Action Plan with Mark Calabria, who is a senior advisor at the Cato Institute. They dig into what the action plan can do to fix the housing crisis in the United States and where it might fall short. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Mark, thanks for being here today. What's the problem that we're talking about? The problem that we're talking about is trying to do a federally assisted housing development today is incredibly complex with fragmented programs where you're trying to stitch together uh, a number of subsidies. And again, it's an, it's an expensive, often inefficient process. And the Biden administration in their housing supply action plan has proposed to address this. Is that going to be easy for them? First of all, I commend them. I think it's worthwhile to do. I think it's important to do. I think it's something that can be done without a lot of new money. But there's certainly going to be some bumps in the road. And I know we'll get into this, but uh, I tried 20 years ago to try to do this when I was on the Hill. Some things have changed, which may make it easier. And some things have changed that may make it harder. But I think it's a worthwhile thing to focus on. And I think it's something where you could potentially get bipartisan agreement. Tremendous. Well, let's back up before we get any further into this. My name is Salim Firth. I'm the co-director of the Urbanity Project here at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. We study housing. I, I mostly work on zoning. So all this finance stuff is is new to me, and I'm, I'm here just to ask questions and listen. My guest today is Mark Calabria. He's a senior advisor to the Cato Institute, where he provides strategic input and direction on the federal economic policymaking process. Mark is the former director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which regulates and supervises Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the federal home loan banks. He served as the deputy assistant secretary for regulatory affairs at HUD during the George W. Bush administration. And most relevant to this conversation, he was a senior aide to the Senate Committee on Banking. He's also served as chief economist to Vice President Mike Pence and held positions at Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies, the National Association of Realtors, and National Association of Home Builders. Most importantly, he holds a doctorate from George Mason <laughs> University. There you go. Although apparently that's not any indication of job stability. Well, you've, you've uh, kept your life interesting. And this really, this is a conversation, a podcast that came out of a tweet, right? So the White House Action Plan came out a couple weeks ago. A lot of us read it over. Plans are, you know, there's a lot of things in there. It just doesn't become law quickly. But you sort of look and say, like, does the White House understand the, the problems that they're tackling? Have they correctly identified solutions? And in several cases, I think you and I thought, yeah, this is really good. But you responded to a tweet of mine where I said, oh, look, here's something they can actually do, which is simplify LIHTC. And you said, hey, not so fast. <laughs> I tried this in 2004. So where were you in 2004? Great point. And so I was on uh, Capitol Hill and maybe provide a little bit of context for those who don't follow. And, and let me preface with, you know, the zoning stuff is is honestly more important in terms of the big bang for the buck. I think this is worth doing. You know, I might have some qualms with other parts of the supply plan that the White House has put out, but this is dead on a real issue. To put it in context, maybe you could say from 2 to 10% of the development construction costs on assisted housing. And so for listeners, I'm going to predominantly use the word assisted, even though the industry term is affordable, partly because in Washington, those terms are synonymous. But the reality is that uh, most housing that's actually affordable is not assisted and lots of assisted housing isn't affordable. But we use those terms synonymously in Washington. And so the issue tends to be that to do a development and primarily affordable housing construction today is, is centered around the low-income housing tax credit created right. in 1986. Now, for about the first 10 years of that, it was slow going. 
and you often had properties that relied almost exclusively on low-income housing tax credit. And so that has kind of morphed over time where LIHTC is still kind of the core subsidy providing the equity. But it's not uncommon for you to also get HOME, which is a big grant program out of HUD, or CDBG assistance, which is another you know, community development block grant program. So you may get block grant programs. They go through the local government. It's not unusual to get you know, FHA insurance with a mortgage. It's not unusual to have Fannie and Freddie buy the tax credits. You know, so for instance, can they put this in context? About two-thirds of LIHTC properties, there's at least somebody on the property who's also getting a Section 8 voucher. Okay. So it's not unusual to also use tenant or, or project-based assistance. None of this was planned that way. These programs are all kind of developed somewhat in isolation. And just the competition, you know, for making the project work, and this is really predominantly gets back to your forte zoning, you see this more likely in a California where you'll see eight subsidies versus, say, a Georgia, and maybe you'll see two or three. And so where the land values are expensive, you see the developer try to cobble together a number of different funding sources. It's also worth saying, again, in LIHTC, much of the discretion for the competition is driven by the state housing finance agencies. And so some state housing finance agencies have chosen to award extra points in the competition for subsidy layering. You know, and that's a broader debate. I, there's part of me who kind of feels like it's double dipping. You know, if we're actually the taxpayers providing the equity, insuring the mortgage, and on some occasions even paying the rent, you know, what exactly is the developer putting in uh, other than, of course, their expertise? But some states have prioritized and rewarded this, and it's really driven this over time. And so, for instance, again, you know, a third of LIHTC properties are getting either home or CDBG. You know, you, you have a lot that are getting some sort of state tax relief. There are also a number of state housing tax credit programs that layer onto this. And so if you think about what the real problem here fundamentally is, almost all of these programs have different applications. Mm-hmm. So it's not unusual for the developer to spend you know, 30 to 40 grand simply on the LIHTC application. And so you keep in mind the average LIHTC property is about 45 units. So if you spend- So you're, you're getting close to $1,000 per unit. Easily. Just for the application. Just for the application for LIHTC. And then if you're going to get, you know, HUD mortgage, FHA mortgage insurance for the multifamily property, you know, that's a separate application. You may have a separate application for the state tax credits. You certainly have a separate application for home or CDBT. So, I mean, sorry, this is great for lawyers and, and you know, they make a lot of money. <laughs> I'm, I'm considering a career change at this <laughs> you, point. You could. And, and there are a number of law firms who solely specialize in this. No disrespect for them. They, they are fulfilling a need that's out there, right. whether it's an inefficiency or not. So, and, and of course, for real estate, it's also important to keep in mind, time is money. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, there may be different application cycles. So it's it's most states do their low-income housing tax credit like once a year on a certain schedule. Well, that's not necessarily the same schedule that you know FHA mortgage insurance are that a state development agency that may give you home money. And certainly that's not the same cycle for, you know, getting a project-based Section 8. So we've gotten increasingly over time just this tremendous amount of complexity. And at the end of the day, it's interesting, there was a study done by the California legislature where after all this was added in, the cost of subsidized properties was about equal to that of market rate properties. I mean, the almost the entire subsidy 
was eaten up in the process. Now, of course, there's other parts of this where you may have prevailing wage Davis banking requirements. Certainly, people in the field will tell you that the quality of properties, you know, we spend more in amenities. You know, that's right. whether that's true or not, I think that's hard to quantify. You may see a little a slightly greater nonprofit developer activity, but really nonprofit developers are single digits percentage in terms of tax credit properties. Maybe so, so the complexity here is is really the issue. This isn't a debate about how much to spend. Yeah, exactly. Now, and, okay, we're here at we're here at Mercatus. And we can debate that, and that's a different conversation. And, and so, and you know, I think one of the things that's important in in having humility as kind of policy analysts is that we don't just say, "Oh, complexity is bad," right? And it's illegible, so it's hard for us on the outside to understand. The people who do it, like, they get it. But it does sound like there's a lot of complexity here that isn't serving kind of an, an important goal, right? These things kind of happened well, not well, not via emergence, not because the market's doing a bunch of different things at once, it, it wasn't but because a bunch of people passed different laws that and, and didn't coordinate co- them. Correct. And we'll talk about, you know— you know, certainly some of this provides a political good, which is, you know, I mean, th- th- this isn't, it's not the result of an irrational process, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so we can talk a little bit about what are the incentives that lead us to what is a very convoluted process that is drawn out and sucks a great amount of the subsidy value out of this. You know, let me also say as an, an aside, one of the differences some of these programs have is the income targeting. And it's important to keep in mind, particularly LIHTC, that you know the requirement is that you do something like you know forty percent of the tenants making at least sixty percent of area median income and lower. And it's important to keep in mind that renters, you know, unsurprisingly, are poorer than the overall population. But the targeting requirements are set on the overall population, and the relevancy here is that nationally, renter median income is about sixty percent of area median income. So for many of these properties, and I know that the developers of this will, you know, their ears will steam a little bit when I say this, <laughs> you could randomly pick renters out of the renter population and meet most of the targeting requirements. Now that said, the states one of the one of the interesting things and, and perhaps one of the valuable things, but it adds to the complexity of LIHTC, is that the state house and finance agencies can add on additional right requirements. And so you do see, you know, uh, an aggressiveness in many states where the targeting is much tighter than the federal standards. But I'm of the view that the federal targeting standards are really not all that binding and they're not all that hard to meet. Let's get into the proposed solution. Right? So it's the Biden administration. They've got this nice, simple paragraph that, that explains that they're going to make this simpler. So what are they saying they're going to do just briefly? So what they're really saying is they're asking Congress to do some alignment across these programs. There are things you can do from the executive point of view, but not a lot. I mean, the big problems fundamentally are statutory. And so you you certainly need congressional changes. You need congressional input. uh, You need congressional coordination. So for instance, just having a one-stop shop you know, and, and maybe to kind of emphasize the complexity of this across agencies, like almost every federal agency has a housing program. This mm-hmm. may surprise you, but let's let's think. Obviously, HUD is an obvious one. Yeah, yeah. sure, they've got housing. Several. Um, you know, LIHTC is a big deal, so most people may or may not know that's administered by Treasury Department. Sure. And obviously, the USDA, the rural housing programs are kind of obvious too. But you might not be aware that the Department of Justice has a shelter program run under the Violence Against Women Act. HHS has a shelter housing program run under, I think, the Family Violence Prevention Act. And of course, VA's got housing programs. And many of these do use combined funding sources. And so there's no real coordination across that. So for instance, 
because the state housing finance agencies do the input, you know, application for LIHTC, which is the core component of this, you know, they're not necessarily coordinating that with an application for HUD or USDA. And there's a lot of actual, like 515 is the USDA multifamily insurance program. A lot of rural LIHTC uses 515. Could the Biden administration say these four agencies are all going to start using the same application that's used for LIHTC? So we're just going to, we're going to force them to adjust a little bit so that when you fill out this one, you can copy it and send it to VA or USDA and make that your application. So you could, and you know, and this could be something that that OMB, OIRA kind of leads on and says, you know, okay, we're going to coordinate and make sure that there are similar funding cycles and we're going to try to make sure the applications, you know, even if, you know, because it's going to be unusual, you're not going to get a HUD mortgage insurance and USDA rural housing insurance on the same loan. You'd be un, it'd be unusual that you would. But you could coordinate some of this and have some application similarities so that it becomes a little more standardized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, you could think about it. Maybe this is something a paralegal needs to do instead of a lawyer. Right. So you can you can reduce some of the fees. But there are also some requirements. So, for instance, there's uh, statutory requirements on HUD where they have to make sure that they review their subsidies that are put in and decide whether the subsidy is actually needed for the project. So there's there are HUD reviews that are built in that you can't get away from without statutory changes. Mm-hmm. And then there are just differences in program requirements. So maybe to give a little history of this, of kind of what got me sucked into this, if you will, interested <laughs> in this. Back in 2000, Congress decided it was going to create something called the Millennial Housing Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, the report is still out there. There was a lot of good research done along with it. And even though it's 20 years old, the report actually came out in summer 2002. It's still out there on the web. I, I suggest those who are interested in history of housing policy to take a look. While most of the recommendations of the Millennial Housing Commission were you know, additional funding programs, you know, interestingly enough, one of the recommendations was coordinate <laughs> subsidy layering review, reduce fragmentation. So you know, the Biden administration proposal really is a rewording of a proposal that was made 20 years ago. Again, arguably more relevant today because it's actually become more complicated today than it was 20 years ago. But the relevancy, so again, as I mentioned, the Millennial Housing Commission report came out summer 2002. You know, I had rejoined the Banking Committee staff 2003. We were looking for a number of issues out of the commission report that we thought you could get bipartisan support for. And as a reminder for those who don't always necessarily understand the congressional process, you know, I worked in the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. We were the authorizing committee, which meant that we could pass laws, we could authorize certain amounts of money to be spent. But ultimately, it was really the Appropriations Committee that would decide whether there was money there. So a certainly a constant tension, if you will, for the authorizing committees, you know, the House Financial Services is the parallel, is you don't actually create money, really. Right. But you can you can focus on efficiencies. Right. And so my counterpart on House Financial Services, we sat down and said, well, this is something where, A, we can do, Mm -hmm. uh, we can at least do parts of, came out of the Mental Housing Commission, which, again, the commission was made up of stakeholders within the housing community. So the assumption really was that the recommendations had already, you know, kind of had some buy-in from stakeholders. Right. And we'll get to this as perhaps an obstacle why we couldn't get any far, but there are a lot of well-established stakeholders in the housing assistance community. 
And they're very vocal and make their views known, and they're very protective of their piece of process. And so we began a process of looking at this. You know, For instance, one of the things we really started to focus on was you had at this point a growing amount of both project and tenant-based Section 8 vouchers used in tax credit properties. But there were a lot of differences in some of the rules and eligibility, and we looked at this and said, you know, what could we fix? Now, I do want to emphasize, you know, I mentioned earlier how there's almost every cabinet agency has a housing program. The reason for that is because the jurisdictional breakdown in Congress, and this is really probably the biggest obstacle of being able to reform here. The tax credit program, LIHTC, of course, is under the jurisdiction of the tax writing committees. Right. You know, Senate Finance, House Ways and Means, and they don't spend the bulk of their time thinking about housing, to be fair. I mean, right. you know, especially when, you've, when you're responsible for tax reform or entitlements and healthcare, you've got a lot going on, in fairness. And so getting cross-committee jurisdictional coordination is very difficult. It's particularly if one side of the committee one of the committees involved isn't terribly interested or has a lot else going on. So that was part of the issue was just getting the tax writing committees to make any changes to coordinate because, mm-hmm. you know, again, there may be things within home, CDBG, Section 8 that you can coordinate to the tax credit, but there are going to be things where you think, you know, making some changes to tax credit makes sense. So we quickly, you know, arrived at the spot where getting the tax committees to do anything was was kind of a non-starter. I mean, right. it, you know, we we had conversations, we we had engagement. So then we were left to the point of saying, you know, what can we change in the housing programs to mimic the tax credit? Certainly, there are things that we were uncomfortable with, as I mentioned earlier. You know, my view is at the federal level, the targeting proposals, the targeting structure in the tax credit is just not very binding in. The targeting you see in Section 8 is binding. There really is a focus on having lower income. And I come from the philosophy of, you know, if we're going to have limited federal housing assistance provided, we should be targeting those most in need. Right. And there's always a constant debate in in housing. You know, you see this in conversations about the mortgage interest reduction or other things that, uh, you know, we we focus a lot of our housing assistance, at least through the tax code, on the upper middle class. Mm-hmm. And so, right. and and I didn't want to see us do something similar. So a non-starter for us was adopting the targeting in the tax credit program. We we really wanted it to go the other way around. So part of that was the effort. But once you started getting to, into the nitty gritty, you really started running into like every little line of difference in some program. You know, it was there for a reason because some constituency group wanted it. And what, so so go give me an example, just like one an illustration of that. So some of this would be maybe just the formula allocations, you know, how much who gets what. And so the the tax credit program, for instance, is per capita calculation. You know, CDBG is a very complicated calculation based on like population loss and poverty and, and, and just aligning funding cycles. But, you know, even creating something where there is a single point of entry, like here's where I think the biggest bang for the buck could be well. Maybe I'll start with the real biggest bang for the buck, but that's not going to happen. But let's okay. discuss it anyhow. So, because this was discussed a little bit in the Bush years, is having much more of a block granting of the programs. So rather than you apply to six different programs, here's a single funding stream where you would roll home CDBG and maybe even you know the tenant based voucher. Roll all this stuff into a single funding stream, send it to the states or cities, and then they could coordinate. You could even have the tax credit, the state housing finance agencies do a application for the entire funding stream. That would be the easiest. 
Now, because of the history, both a little bit with the Nixon years and the Reagan years, where there was significant block granting. So the CDBG, right. for instance, came out of all of these ridiculous, like you know, yeah, that was a, that was a major reform. Everybody it criticizes really, it now, but it's a it was a big improvement at the time. Uh, absolutely, and in, in, in my view, in our view, it was a big improvement. Uh, I'll get to why some people don't see it as improvement. But you had a lot of these, like just you know, here's your sewer improvement. I mean, random yeah. stuff where it was so tied, and of course, it bears same. You know, we we economists tend to think you know cash transfers are better than in kind. Congress has a different philosophy on that, sure. but they're really twenty years ago was this you know re- very negative reaction in the housing community over block granting, and the perception was that sure okay we get more flexibility, but it's easier to cut block grants, and you could argue that given the funding levels over time of CDBG and home, there's there's probably an argument for that. Of course, to me. I think if you got 90 cents with a lot less regulatory burden than 100 cents, you could still be much better off. Right. But there really was such a pushback. So first and best is block granting a lot of this stuff. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Second best really is how do you could, – could you set up a federal single point of entry? You know, you've right. seen this at the local level. I remember when I first moved to D.C. in the 90s, they had consolidated. You know, you as a developer had to go to like 10 different spots to kind of get a project done. And they really consolidated. I believe this was under Mayor Williams. And they really consolidated some of the local entry points. And, it and, really, and Pennsylvania has something similar, exactly. right, for all their state grants. And it, and it really is something that saves a lot of time. It adds a lot of certainty to the process. You really get into these problems where – if 10 different agencies have a veto over it, who's going who's gonna, to – A, who's crazy enough to run that gauntlet to begin right. with? And then who's going to make it through? So I do think you could do something at the federal level where you had a consolidated application process. It gets back to our – Right. So this, this, seems, this seems like the logical – like you're not reaching too much. Maybe the, the funding is – you know not everything – you're not going to qualify for everything. Yeah. But you can put your application in and you check the box. I qualify for you know A, J, and K, yep. but not the other ones. And, and then you have a then you have a review process. Now I do think there take some statutory changes basically to kind of move some of the responsibilities and authorities that are placed on like HUD or USDA and move them to this consolidator. Now of course you could simply say you know HUD. Well, you could decide HUD. You could pick an agency and say you know we're going to make them a consolidator. Now, there are individual programs. So, for instance, long-running debates, and the Bush administration argued to do this as well as the Trump administration, where you were going to take the rural housing programs out of USDA and put them over at HUD. Of course, the way I describe it is they can be at an agency that doesn't care about housing or they can be at an agency that doesn't care about rural. Right. (laughs) I was exaggerating a little bit, but but kind of pick your poison. Right. And so there are ways to change that. Uh, And I do think part of the problem with HUD is, you know, housing, urban development, it's seen as politically a big city agency. Right. It's not seen as an agency that looks out for suburbs or rural areas. And I think there's a, you know, we're at a point in our country where it's a reasonable point to ask, should that be, I mean, should it be the Department of Housing and Community Development rather than urban development? Um, but that said, you could do some program consolidation there, but making somebody the single point of entry, I think would be the biggest change. It would also be easier in some ways because the rural programs and the veterans programs are actually under the jurisdiction of the banking committee. Now, I know my friends are from the Ag Committee and the Veterans Committee take some different views, but you know, this is something we fought. But it's, it's, conce- it's conceivable that one committee could at least get oh, those. You know, 70% right. of it done. 
you know, I, I do think that there needs to be a broader conversation. And we somewhat saw this in the COVID response where, as you recall, the, the housing and rental assistance for some bizarre reason was ran out of treasury. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that it took forever for anybody to get any money was because it was run out of treasury. And, and again, they've had the tax credit program. They have the new markets tax credit program. But there's not a lot of housing expertise at Treasury, all due respect, people there. And I do think we should have a broader conversation of whether we should have any housing programs at Treasury. It's, it's simply not their expertise uh, and moving that somewhere else. So some of this could be changes within the programs, you know, but at a minimum, creating some sort of single point of entry where you are consolidating this, I think, so, could make a big difference. Yeah. So let's let's take this sort of small bore because I think this is what the Biden administration is talking about, right? They're not talking about rethinking the architecture. Correct. They're talking about the fact that you can get on a, a Virginia bus or a Maryland bus or a DC bus with your smart trip card. And like, yes, there's problems with having a fragmented transportation network, but at least you've got one card. In your exactly. Wallet. So we're, we're talking about something on that that scale. So who would be, if you if you sort of had your, your, your magic wand to go around Washington and sort of an, anoint two or three people to sort of be the leaders, who are, who are the natural either in the administration or in Congress, who are the individuals who would say, oh, I want this person in this role to be passionate about this? Because if I get these two or three people passionate, they will actually have the expertise and authority to move something through. Great question. And you and you really get at one of the reasons that we were not able to get this done 20 years ago was there was no real buy-in from congressional leadership or even you know from the Bush administration. It came out of the Leno Housing Commission. So everybody mm-hmm. could other than the commissioners could distance themselves from that, that, you know, yeah. and this was really a staff driven effort. And I don't want to un- minimize often a lot of things can get done on the Hill simply because some staffer gets worked up about it. But this is a little bigger than that. Yeah. And, and so you had, this is the, the, the things I think that are different today. A, you've got an explicit White House statement. Right. So, the re- so then who within, who within the White House is that going to be? I mean, you know, that's a good question. You know, is this NEC running with it? Is this DP, National Economic Council? Is right. this Domestic Policy Council? Are they anointing somebody, you know, who's going to run with this? Who's who's got who, who can pressure and put some emphasis on Congress? The interagency part, my my feeling is it's really got to be OMB because there's okay. there's nobody who quite, you know. I, you could put this. There's nobody who's quite feared <laughs> within right. the executive branch. Yeah, by yeah. The you've got, you've got to be able. You've got to be able to say yes. like, I need you to prioritize this work. It's not that they oppose it. It's that every agency has their own priorities and like. And, and it's also OMB has the expertise of like you know you think things like say cost benefit analysis. OMB has a historic role of standardizing you know paperwork and 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 so they're really this if. From the executive branch perspective of this, it's got to be OMB driven. From the legislative and trying to get congressional changes, you know, probably DPC because oh, you know, NEC has a lot on their plate. So the White House Domestic Policy Council yes, will be it, it, facing the legislature, and then on Capitol Hill. So this is a great question. Now we do have the benefit of there are a handful of members that are on both banking and finance. You think about people Help, like Sher- Sherrod Brown, Elizabeth Warren, Mike Crapo on the Republican side, uh, Tim Scott. So you, you actually are in an interesting spot where there are members on both who, who sit on both committees and can take the view of what do we need to coordinate with this. And certainly Brown has expressed a tremendous amount of interest in housing issues during his, his tenure so far as chair of the banking committee. And of course, Tim Scott also sits on finance and it right. is the likely Republican 
to come in if the Senate flips. So you have some interest there. And again, you know, Elizabeth Warren is somebody who sits on both committees and arguably has some insulation. You know, she can kind of push some of the groups further than they may like to be pushed because some of this is going to, you know, sacrifice, you know, you got to create kind of a steamroller here right. where the, the view is, you know, you're on the train or you're, or you're going to get left behind. And we were never able to get to that point of momentum 20 years ago where people felt like if they weren't you know, at the table, the old Washington crib, you know, if you're not at the table, table, you're on the menu. menu. And so nobody, you know, we we were never able to get to that point where people felt like that they had to get on board. So I do think if you have one of these members, you don't have the same benefit. It's very unusual. I can't think of any members off the top of my head who are on House Financial Services and House Ways and Means. It it, it doesn't tend to work the same way in the House. But if you had a big name senator on these committees really kind of say, I'm going to run with this issue, I think you could kind of get that done. And again, you know, Sherrod Brown is probably the most obvious person who should run with this. And again, Crapo or Scott could be somebody. And I believe Toomey's also on finance. But, you know, I, this isn't going to get done this year. I mean, I know. Yeah, we, right. It's, I, an, it's I, an election year. And it's, I know it feels like there's still half a year left. But in terms of legislative days, no, not at all. So this is really a, you know, next year, is this something where – Republicans could come to agreement with the administration? And I would say the short answer is possibly yes. I, right. I I think there are agreements here. So this is something that you could spend the rest of the year having hearings on. You know, staff could start drafting, negotiating. So this is something out of the plan. Much of the rest of the we, – we don't need to get into the details of the rest of the housing plan, but a lot of the new spending – in this environment of inflation and deficits, I don't see Republicans getting on board with right. new housing spending programs. To me, it's a non-starter. Right. So for, for both sides, getting some efficiency out of these existing spending is a clear win. Exactly. Now, which, which industry groups do you feel like could be on board and be champions and which ones do you feel like – need to get rolled and and uh, well I, I mean depending on how you do it i mean certainly i mean the developers ultimately should you should be able to get them on board the places like nahb national system home builders where you know these are the people who have to run the gauntlet mm-hmm. and so for them one-stop shopping really is is kind of attractive I, I would say the kind of lawyers and syndicators while influential are probably not influential enough to really be an obstacle to this so you know there'll be one or two three law firms that would really be threatened by <laughs> by this, but they just don't have the kind of juice yeah. you know, politically to, to – they can get rolled. You know, in terms of how far you're willing to go with it, I mean the big part of the problem is let's say we set up a, a federal one-stop shop. Now, you know, I've been within HUD. I've walked that 10 floors of basement. I, I know the problems yes. there. And so I only very, very reluctantly say – that HUD is, is is the agency who probably should be the point on this. But that means that, you know, as much as Treasury doesn't – as much as Treasury is kind of half-hearted about its housing, they don't want to lose it. I mean, so you're going to get into these cabinet squabbles of, you know, not wanting to give up, you know, complete control of their programs. And this is where you need the White House to kind of come in and say to Treasury or, or the USDA or the other agencies, like, listen – this agency is going to be the point on this. President says so, get on board. That's right. And if you don't have that, then you're just going to have this political squabbling. So again, what we lacked 20 years ago was the leadership we needed among, you know, elected the principals. And, and you don't and if you can do that today, you can get there. But I'll say if you don't have that, if you don't have presidential and elected member involvement, it's not going to get done because, again, the committee differences, the industry differences, and the agency differences will just bog it down. 
Right. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for, for your insight. I think we, we wish well those who are in the arena, and we understand this is not going to be not going to be easy, but it's worth doing. It is. It's absolutely. It, it, it's probably the thing that's most where the uh, cost benefit ratio in the plan is probably the greatest in my view. That's right. Right, because the costs are, yeah. you know, schlepping around Washington, hired a bunch of lawyers to do multiple applications. You know, it's all process costs. And so I do think this is something where you can bring down some costs in the, in the process. You bring some certainty to the process. You put a couple of lawyers out of business. But there's plenty of demand for lawyers in our country, so I'm not worried about them finding other work. So again, the, the, the ratio of benefit the cost here, in my view, is probably the greatest in the program, in the plan. And the potential for bipartisan agreement is probably stronger here than anywhere else in the plan. Sounds great. Let's go get lunch. Absolutely. Thanks. The Mercatus Policy Download is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Explore our research on pressing policy problems at mercatus.org. And for even more, follow us on Twitter at Mercatus. Mercatus.